Good morning. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Jerry Pionk. I'm uh, Assistant Secretary of the Army Manpower and Reserve Affairs and Deputy Chief of Staff, Army G1 Public Affairs. Um, I'd like to welcome you here this morning. I thank you guys for being here. Go ahead and let our panel come on in. I'll go ahead and uh, talk about first some of the ground rules for today. Today's media panel is on talent management and Army personnel. It will be recorded. Uh, it will be available on Divid's Hub later today as well as C-SPAN. Uh, with that, can I remind everybody to please go ahead and put your cell phones on vibrate or mute. Feel free to tweet or record. This is a public event. For the journalists in the room or for anybody who has a question, uh, you allowed one question with one follow-on, and we'll bring a microphone over to you. Just identify who you are, ask your question, we'll respond, and then we'll follow on with, uh, you can follow on with one additional question after that. Today's host is U.S. Army Lieutenant General James C. McConville. He's the 47th Deputy Chief of Staff, Army G1. He's responsible for developing and managing and executing the manpower and personnel plans, programs, and policies for the total Army to include our DA civilian workforce and our families. Prior to this assignment, he served as the Commanding General of the 101st Airborne Division and Fort Campbell, Kentucky. He hails from Quincy, Massachusetts, and he was commissioned as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army upon graduation from the United States Military Academy in 1981. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree from the United States Military Academy, a Master of Science degree in Aerospace Engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology, and he was a 2002 National Security Fellow at Harvard University. And at this time, sir, I will turn the floor over well, to you. Well, thank you, and uh, we appreciate you um, all coming today. And really what you have before you are the leaders of the human resource enterprise. Uh, and I'm going to introduce um, each of them as we, as we move along, but what I'd like to do is make a few opening comments. And I think it's important we start with really where the Army is, is today, what's going on, and I'm going to talk a little about what the future state's going to be. So, you know, when we think about the Army, the Army's people, and people matter. And, you know, presently we have just about a little over one million soldiers in the Army today and about 250,000 uh, great civilians, 475,000 soldiers in the active Army. Now, that's the smallest Army we've had since World War II. And approximately 190,000 of those soldiers are presently supporting or operating in 140 countries. And as many of you know, we're still in Afghanistan and Iraq. We have rotational deployments going to places like Korea and Germany. And that's the, the, the set that we have right now. So it's a very, very busy Army. The op tempo is, is very high. And as we go forward, it becomes increasingly important as we draw down the Army, that every single soldier can get on the field and play their position both home and away. And so as we move forward, as many of you know, the Chief's number one priority is readiness. And our contribution to that is, is really in two areas. It's manning the force, and it's also leadership development. And that's really where talent management comes in. You know, we talk about other services uh, equip their people. And in the Army, it's, it's, it's really about manning the equipment, where in the Army it's about equipping the soldier. And that's where we, it's kind of fundamentally what we do. And so one of, one of the things that, that we're working on very closely and we're going we're gonna to talk about is the importance of talent management. What we want to do is, is really take our system, which is really an, an industrial age personnel management system, and to move that to a 21st century talent management system that recognizes the knowledge, skills, and behavior 
of all our soldiers and civilians in the force. And the way we're going to do that is we're in the process of fielding an integrated personnel and pay system that is going to fundamentally change the way we do business in the Army. It's going to fundamentally change the way we do talent management and personnel management uh, in the Army. So we're very, very excited about that, and we welcome your questions. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to turn to Alex Schaffner, who's who is the director of the Talent Management Task Force. His job is to go ahead and implement all these initiatives that we have ongoing in the Army. So, Al, over to you for opening comments. Thanks, sir. So, Major General Al Schaffner from the Talent Management Task Force. Uh, what the task force is all about, we've been around since November of last year. We're very new. Uh, we're formalized uh, by a charter signed by the Secretary of, Army, of the Army just this past June. And what the task force is all about, the big idea is that if we can better see the talents that we have within the Army, and we can better describe the requirements that we have within the Army, then we can achieve exactly what General McConville was talking about. We can fundamentally change the way we manage people in the Army. And uh, I'll be followed by Brigadier General Diana Holland. She is the Commandant of the United States Military Academy, <laughs> and very pleased to have her here. Thank you, sir. Uh, good morning. As General McConville said, I'm Diana Holland. I'm the Commandant of Cadets of the United States Military Academy of West Point. Uh, I have the privilege of overseeing the professional development of just over 4,400 cadets, uh, building them into leaders of character. Uh, relevant to this panel here, uh, we've had the privilege of piloting a talent-based branching program over the last couple years in support of the Army's initiative for talent management, uh, already starting to see some positive outcomes. Uh, we don't know all the answers yet, but we are starting to see some positive developments, so I can talk a little bit more about that. Thank you. Yeah, and, and to my right is, is one of our senior SESs for, for personnel management, uh, Gwen D. Filippi. Good morning, Gwen D. Filippi. I'm the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civilian Personnel. Um, in that role, I have oversight and leadership of the, the policies that govern civilian personnel. It's a, it goes with the title, I guess. Um, the thing that I'm most pleased about working on in that regard is uh, the ability to create a talent management system for our civilian workforce. I think many people would agree that um, in civil service, you have an opportunity to build the career that you want, and you do it without a whole lot of guidance from the institution. Um, so over the last um, five or ten years, uh, the Army's really been working to address that, and I've had an opportunity to lead that, so I look forward to your, your questions and comments. Okay, and to her right is, is, is General Jeff Snow, who is in charge of our recruiting command. Uh, thanks, sir, and uh, great to be part of the panel. Uh, again, I'm uh, the commanding general for uh, U.S. Army Recruiting Command, headquartered at uh, Fort Knox, uh, Kentucky. I've got the privilege of uh, commanding one of our most uh, geo-dispersed uh, outfits in the Army, uh, 12,500 uh, folks across the United States and uh, territories. Uh, that includes some 9,000 recruiters in, uh, in all of those uh, states and uh, territories. And our mission is to, is to recruit uh, about 80,000 folks uh, into the regular Army and Army Reserve each year. So in our chief talks, uh, one Army, uh, but, but right now we don't recruit as one Army. Uh, we recruit uh, two components, uh, although we are going to start a pilot this, uh, this next year that will start to begin to recruit uh, for that uh, third component uh, being the National Guard. Uh, the last thing I want to say is uh, I, I am happy to report that uh, you know, we just finished a, a fiscal year. 
and, uh, and we were able to accomplish uh, our mission, uh, regular Army and Army Reserve, for the for the first time in uh, in in, uh, in five years. But tough part of this business is so while we're very happy about that, uh, not, now we've already started uh, this uh, this next year, and so it's it's one of those missions that uh, never stops. So I look forward to the questions. Uh, we're really proud of our recruiters. Again, first time in five years met the mission for both the active and the reserve, so, so well done, and, and Jeff will be followed by Chris Hughes, who's, who's, who's the commanding general of our ROTC command. And good morning, and, and it, it is also a pleasure to be here today. Uh, I took command of Cadet Command uh, in May of this year. Uh, it's an interesting uh, command in that we do similar things to recruiting command, and we also partner very closely with the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, my command is located at Fort Knox, Kentucky. We have consolidated all of our programs there in the last uh, three years. Uh, my job is to recruit, train, and educate, and eventually commission uh, annually 5,500 Army officers into all three of the compos, active, guard, and reserve. Uh, the officer uh, population that we have currently has 30,600 college students across the United States who are contracted uh, to potentially become commissioned officers in the United States Army. Uh, we have 976 colleges and universities that we partner with across the country to pull these diverse officers from, from around the nation. We also uh, have four territories that we recruit from, from all 50 states in the United States. ROTC, or the uh, Cadet Command, produces 70% of the Army Officer Corps, as I stated earlier, 5,500. The uh, junior ROTC program also falls underneath my command where we have 312,000 high school cadets across the country, again, all 50 states, representing 1,705 high schools across the country to include four territories and three foreign countries. Uh, so I'll, I look forward to your questions and how we partner with the rest of the team up here. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, everybody. Um, we do have some questions that are available from our Army Social Media Division, but before we take those, we'll go ahead and take any questions from the room. Going one. <laughs> Corey? Right. Uh, thanks, Jess. Thank you so much. Sorry. Thank you for, uh, for doing this. Um, I'm Corey Dixon with Stars and Stripes. Uh, I'm going to ask about uh, general integration policies. Um, but this has obviously been, been a, a process that's been going on, and, and we haven't seen. We saw the, the three uh, women who, who passed Ranger Ranger course last year. We've not seen uh, another woman uh, graduate, but we. I, I know we have. Uh, you guys have several um, in the infantry and armor branches that are going. I think now through infantry officer basic course. Can you? Yeah, I can talk. Let me talk about that. Yeah, and, and, and maybe even. General Holland wants to talk to that from the Commandant of, of West Point. But, but first of all, from the Army standpoint, anyone that can meet the standards can serve in any military occupational specialty you want. So it's really about standards. And, and this is a fundamental change uh, in, in what we're doing in our military. So we have opened up all the branches. Um, we went back to West Point and ROTC, and presently we have 25 lieutenants uh, going through the infantry and armor uh, initial military training basic course. So we have 25 that, that are, are working the way through right now. They will be finishing those courses shortly, 
and they will have the opportunity to go to Ranger School or you know the other type schools that that, that their counterparts will go through. So you know what we're doing right now is we're we're doing what we call a leaders first process. It's very deliberate. It's very methodical. We want to set the conditions uh, for success for the for the for the officers that are coming through. So that's the process as far as officers are going. In February, we will begin sending young men and women to the basically the initial military training courses in infantry and armor. And they will go to that training and the, the intent is that after lieutenants finish their training, they will either go to Fort Bragg or Fort Carson, excuse me, Fort, Fort Bragg or um, Fort Hood, I got it, I got it. So a little incoming there, so we're taking taking the table. But anyway, so so really, really was you know, the, the set the conditions. They will go to Fort Bragg or, or Fort Hood, and then we'll start we'll start moving our way through it. So that's that's kind of the, the process that we're using. You know, the, the intent is is to set the conditions for success, and then as we move forward, we, we think we'll have more um, young women that are interested in doing it. The Sergeant Major of the Army's gone out with the team. They're going out to. Uh, installations and, and explaining um, um, or recruiting those who want to serve to give them an opportunity to serve. We've had some non-commissioned officers, uh, about four or five uh, in the National Guard that have gone through the training and are ready to serve. And again, we, we, see self, we see positive progress and we see as more women have the opportunity to go through the training and they're successful that more women will want to do it. And I'd you know, like to turn it General Holland, if you want to make any comments. Yes, sir. Um, I would just say that, uh, you know, I can't speak for Fort Benning and, and, and how, how, that, how Ranger School is going, but I do know the women who are going, the West Point graduates who are going through the infantry basic course and the armor basic course, getting a lot of positive feedback. I can speak for the class of 2017 who's right now choosing or putting in their branch preferences. There's a lot of excitement about it. So I think uh, all positive things in the future. Let me say one more thing uh, about, you know, people talk about women in the Army, women in combat. You know, what a lot of people don't know is there's 170,000 women in the United States Army right now. 170,000, 69,000 in the active Army. They're absolutely key to what we do. The other thing a lot of people don't realize is in every single infantry, armor, in artillery battalion, in every single brigade combat team in the Army, active Army, there are women today. And in, if you look at our BCTs, our combat brigade combat teams, uh, the number of women runs anywhere from 150 to four or 500 in these organizations. So women are serving these organizations. What, what is the big change is women will be serving in the infantry and the armor MOSs. Hey, sir, can I just add yeah, something? Yeah, from, from an enlisted perspective, just a couple of things I think for context. So, you know, this year it's been a good it's, it's been a good year. Uh, in fact, uh, we've had 14,000 women that made a decision to join the Army today. So um, that's pretty significant of that number. So that that percentage 17.48 uh, percent, uh, and that is the highest percentage of women that have joined uh, the Army since 2006. So what we thought is again, uh, you know. General integration, we talked a, a number of different things. Most of us, and, and the research led us to believe that we did not see we'd you know, see a significant influx into infantry and armament. We, th we thought we'd see some number. 
But the fact that we opened up those MOSs, I do think has caused some young women to look at the Army differently because it's a level playing field, equal work for equal pay. And as a result, we did see an increase uh, this year. I think the other part, again, going to the leader first, while you haven't heard that much about it, again, it, there are women that have made the decision to come into these enlisted women that have made the decision to join the Army, but because of the leader first principle, they don't go off to school until that February time frame. And I suspect you'll likely hear more when they begin to go to school in February, March. Sir, I also don't Please. I think the class of 17, as General Holland said, is going to be a, a seminal moment for us. Um, I, too, had an opportunity to talk to 10,000 cadets who came through summer training this year. The level of enthusiasm is the same as they're seeing in the academy. And so, but it's, it's so new, and it, we're mentoring them through the process. But uh, the, the amount of young officer candidates that I saw this summer, uh, it's doubled in terms of who went to the infantry booths, who went to the armor booths. But more importantly for me, my first chance to see this was that clearly almost 50% of all of our distinguished honor graduates from the courses this summer the cadet battalion commander who led the formation through graduation, they were predominantly female. And so they're winning the awards, they're winning the physical competitions, they're coming to the plate with this kind of enthusiasm. So I think you'll see this swell in the next couple of years. Thank you. Corey, Can I do a follow-up on a totally ahead, different subject? Is that okay? No, let's go ahead, Corey. Uh, I just noticed looking at this fact sheet that was handed out, um, and I know that fact that the number's been thrown out before that I think only about 25% uh, of the youth population is um, qualified, qualified to, serve, uh, yeah. to, to, en to enlist or to serve. Is there anything that, from your standpoint, you guys, the, the Army, can do about that or, or do you need to do anything about it or do you, do you, know, do you feel responsible to, to make sure we have enough kids that are qualified to come in and, and serve? Well, yes. Um, you know, we, we want to do a lot about it, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I kind of take a different twist in this. I, I think it's a privilege to serve your country. And I think every young man and woman who's able should, should take the opportunity to serve. And the reason is, I think maybe besides them getting married and having a wife and kids, the most important thing they'll do in their life when you talk to veterans is serve their country. And, and I think sometimes, you know, where we can use help is getting that message out. You know, in my, my last job, I had a chance to come in 101st Airborne Division. I had a chance to go to Normandy uh, for the 70th anniversary. And I had a chance to talk to these men who, you know, jumped into Normandy. One was 16 years old when he jumped into Normandy. Another person was 23 when he jumped in. He came back 70 years later and jumped in again. And when you, absolutely, Jim Pee Wee Martin. But, but the incredible thing about these men, when you think about it, they're in the twilight of, of their lives. And you, you see the passion they have for their buddies that they went to combat with. And you see how proud of the service they are. And so we want to give that opportunity to every young man and, and woman in the Army. And, and that's why we have what we call the Soldier for Life program. Extremely important. Because right now, in, in a lot of ways, we, we're a little disconnected. Uh, from civilian society. If you take a look at our recruits that come into the Army, 79% of the soldiers that come in the Army have a family member that served in the military. 59% of them served in the Army. So it's becoming a family business. We want it to be a country's business. We want everyone to serve their country. And in order to do that, you've got to be physically fit. You know, you've got to be resilient. 
and you've got to have character. And those are all good qualities that we want in our citizens anyways. And if you think about it, what we really want folks to do is come in and do one tour. You know, what a lot of people don't understand is 10% of our enlisted soldiers that come to the Army are only going to, you know, only 10% are going to serve 20 years. So 10% of enlisted soldiers, 30% of officers that come into the Army are going to stay to 20 years. So percentage-wise, about 85% of the people that enter the Army are not going to stay on to uh, retirement. So what we want them to do is we want them to serve honorably during whatever their tour is, and then we want them to take their GI Bill, we want them to go off to society, we want them to be soldiers for life, and then the, there's two things that we want to give them. We want them to hire, we want them to hire our veterans to keep the cycle, so veterans coming out just like them get hired, and we want them to inspire other young men and women to serve, because that's really what the strength of the country is. So, did Jeff, you guys want to talk about that? Sure, I'd love to talk about Junior ROTC. So you talk about a place where we're actually able to affect uh, instilling the things that General McConnell just mentioned. Uh, 1,705 high schools have gone half with us. They, they take one of these veterans for life that General McConnell was talking about, a major, a sergeant major, a lieutenant colonel who is retired, who still wants to instill those values in young men and women. And they go to high schools and they get hired by the principal of a high school and the, and the school system then pays half their salary and we are funded through Congress to pay the other half and they instill these values in these programs. And the fact that we have 312,000 young men and women that aspire to go to these programs, we see nothing but positive effects from this. Now, my mission statement for that is to create better citizens for the United States, not to recruit for the United States Army, but to, to create better citizens. And so I think of one place where we actually affect that on the ground is through these junior ROTC programs. And Congress is very supportive and making sure that we have the resources to do that. And so the only thing I'll add is uh, I, I think your fact sheet is spot on. I mean, this is a challenge, and I'll tell you, um, you know, we call, we, we talk about this, uh, this experiment, this all-volunteer force uh, that, that, you know, I would tell you it's really an all-recruited force, okay? And if it ever comes to a point where men and women cannot meet the qualifications to come in, they stop raising their right hand, and a lot of folks say, well, the Army's in trouble. I will tell you, I think the nation's in trouble. So to the extent that we can partner with organizations that cause, call attention to this, okay, uh, and it really starts in, uh, we know this from the research, it really starts in elementary school with the importance of, you know, proper uh, nutrition, proper, you know, a lot, lot of schools are cutting back on, uh, on physical uh, training programs, and so we ought not to be surprised at this day and age that, um, that is one of the challenges for young men to join. I think we have been very consistent um, at calling attention to the, to the facts. And then those organizations, there are some organizations that are kind of taking this on to go after it, help improve the quality of uh, school lunch programs, actually bringing uh, physical fitness back into our schools when, um, because they understand it's, this is, one could make the case, and I think some have, and I happen to agree with it, it's, we're really talking about national security threat. This is not just unique to uh, the Army, but I'm, I'm glad that you've picked up on that. It is something that we need to take on. I'd like to comment, too, if I yeah. could. Um, so we also recruit civilians, and so from a, a, a perspective of public service, um, we have a little bit broader set that we can recruit from, although we also are looking for people of character. Um, annually, we're going to recruit about 50,000. We're going to fill about 50,000 jobs in the, in the Army. 
we're going to get about two and a half million applications. So we're still looking for lots of great quality people to serve um, without having to wear a uniform every day. Okay, thank you. Sir? Good morning, uh, General McConville, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Paul Grant with the Talent Management Task Force. With my front row seat to the organization, I understand there are many disparate initiatives to improve the situation. One initiative that I was uh, made aware of, I believe through a recent conversation with OEMA, is what is being done in Great Britain, specifically because their society is shifting similar to our own disparate beliefs, changes in physical demographics. It was decided that basic military training for the Royal Army should be 48 weeks long. During this extended period, they could get them into the physical shape they needed. They could brand them, if you will, with the ethics, this is right, this is wrong, this is, this is acceptable, this is not acceptable, not necessarily based on anything other than what is serviceable for the military, what there is no variance in yes or no. With that said, has there been any consideration for changing American basic military basic training, particularly considering the fact that the Brits have discovered that they have approximately a four-fold increase in careerists as opposed to those that get in and get out. We have approximately 17% that go to 20 years, whereas a four-fold increase makes that sound like a very viable initiative. Well, a couple of points on that is, is having a chance to uh, take a look at I, I think we, we are looking at the length of uh, basic training and, and how long we want to do that. There's been some studies done on that. Um, what it really comes down to is where, where, where do you want to invest resources? And, and you know, I think in some ways we're, we're trying to find that sweet spot of how much preparation we do now that we have an uh, an, an op occupational physical assessment test that will begin uh, as we bring recruits online. So how much do we get them in shape before they actually ship out the basic training? How long do we have them in basic training um, as, as far as, you know, how much training we want to put into them and then does everyone get the same amount of training or do other folks only, you know, if they're having trouble getting through initial military tra training, they actually get turned around or do we just extend it? So. All those things are being discussed right now. What it really comes down to is people and resources. And right now, both are, you know, very constrained. So that, that's what we're looking at as we go forward. So I, I can tell you we're looking at it. That's all part of the, the, the business as we go forward, but no final decisions have been made on the ability to lengthen, especially to that length right now. Yeah. Hey, hey, sir, if I could just yeah. uh, add, you know, it, it's interesting you made the comment. I'm not actually familiar uh, with that initiative that you're discussing, and, and I, um, I'm not sure how far along they are. It's interesting that we actually have an MOI with the uh, United Kingdom. Okay, my counterpart, a uh, guy by the name of uh, Major General Tekel, uh, has actually had two recent visits over here, um, in fact, talking about the challenges. We, sit, we, we share very similar challenges, but one thing as you look at this, there is a scale difference. Okay, if you look at how many we recruit for two components, some 80,000, they recruit about 10,000 a year. I mean, that's something that we've got to take into consideration. Um, but I, the other thing is, is they have contracted a significant portion of their, or collaborative working uh, with a, uh, a civilian organization to actually recruit. 
Now, um, we're actually, the, this MOA is actually going to govern visits. So I'm going to send in a, an, an officer, an NCO, a civilian over there for two weeks at a time to look at their system because I do think we can learn from one another, you know. And, and I think our leadership has been very clear that, you know, we can learn from our partners and allies. And this is a case where the challenges are actually strikingly similar. Um, and so I do think there's an opportunity to learn from them. They're going to do the same thing for us, so they're going to come over and embed folks for a couple of weeks and, uh, and take a look at how we are going about business and you know, how we're leveraging social media, virtual recruiting, stuff like that. Um, but, but it's just interesting. He did not mention this particular initiative. I mean, that's pretty significant, I mean, 48 weeks of, uh, of time. I just had not heard that. You know, one of the things we're doing from a talent management point of view is taking a look at how to use the different tests uh, and evaluation tools that we have available to us to get a better soldier job fit. And uh, to go back to your point about physical capability, we are looking at how do we improve physical capability. Uh, but the new physical test, the OPAP, the Occupational Physical Assessment Test, is something we've never had before. We spent over two years studying and testing the job requirements of the different jobs in the Army to come up with this test. It's scientifically based, it is well researched, it's documented. Uh, we feel very strongly that the OPAT now gives us the, the tools that we need uh, to help achieve that better soldier job fit. So we, we want to take a look at all tools available to us, the, the cognitive, the non-cognitive, and the physical. Uh, so if I had one bumper sticker for uh, what we're trying to do from a talent management point of view, it's right soldier, right job, right time. Thank you. Now we had uh, one question from social media that we promised to take. Paul, would you go ahead and uh, express that, please? Here's the question from online. You mentioned that the Army is getting smaller. I assume it's greatly due to drawdown. How is the Army mitigating risk of supply and demand as the Army continues to draw down? Well, one of the things that you'll hear me say more often than not is, 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 is really the importance of every soldier being able to get on the field and play the position home and away. And, and you know, at various times, you know, at, we may have 10% of our soldiers who are falling to the non deployable category. And when you look at a million army, that's 100,000 soldiers. When you look at a 475,000 actor, that's 47,000 soldiers. And you divide, you start dividing, you know, that into what that equates to divisions and brigades. So there's, you know, we, when we have soldiers that are wounded, injured, or ill, we want to make sure that they get the care they need, the benefits they've earned, and, and an opportunity that they can no longer serve to transition to a good job on the outside, but we are, we are starting to take a hard look at those who can't deploy, and, and that's one of the ways we, we're going to have to mitigate risk, uh, giving the constraints we have on just how big the Army can be. And, and that's the, the message from the senior leadership is every single soldier is important. Every single soldier is important. And it's really what makes our, our Army different than, than a lot of other armies. There's bigger armies in the world. But what makes our Army what it is today is the quality of our soldiers, our non-commissioned officers, and our officers. That's what makes us the, the greatest Army in the world. Okay, thank you. We have time for one more question. Morning, ladies and gentlemen. Major Walker, Town Manager Task Force. Sir, from your perspective, what uh, technological innovations are required as the Army currently pursuing that will allow it to manage town effectively using this assessment data? And yeah, I, I, you know, I think one of the biggest initiatives we have in the Army uh, is the integrated personnel and pay system. And, and I say that because I think we need to give the, the IT tools to our human resources managers that are 
truly going to allow us to manage talent. And, and by way of example, so when we talk about IFSA, it'll be the first time in the history of the Army that we have all three components, the active, guard, and reserve on one system. And this is a huge deal. Because if you think about it, you know, you know, right now as the G1 of the Army, I cannot screen for the talent that I have in the Guard and Reserve. And, and I, by way of example, when, when I was the Deputy Command General uh, for the 101st Airborne Division, we were in Afghanistan and we were going through a surge and we needed a lot of um, skill sets that would help us build out Afghanistan at this time. So what we did was we had the, the Reserve and Guard forces were there fill out an Excel spreadsheet, and they told us what their talents were in real life. So we got to, you know, so basically what I found out where the Army was managing this person as a supply sergeant, but they might have been running a construction company, or they were a, you know, an S3, you know, a captain or major of infantry, the way we're managed, but we found out this person was the head of the Texas Highway Department. And I could just go on a list. So, so all of a sudden, because we managed basically people in the Army by, you know, two variables, what is your rank and what is your, you know, occupational specialty, we don't know enough about them. We, we truly don't know what their knowledge, skills, and abilities are. So all of a sudden you start to tap into these incredible folks across the entire force. You know, so now we've got a million folks that we can tap into and get them on the field in the right position, in the right place at the right time. First time we're going to be able to do that. All three components on one system. The other thing it's going to allow us to do is, you know, we talk about talent management, but, you know, you can't be agile and navigating if you're still doing it with a map, map and count compass at night. You just can't be that agile, you know. So it's the same thing with our, our uh, assignment officers. If they're managing 1,000 to 2,000 officers or NCOs, there's no way they can know everything we want to know about those folks. What this system is going to allow us for the first time to do is take a look at someone and start to manage their talent. So if they're a captain of the infantry, we'll know what language skills they have. We'll know what regional experience they'll have. We'll know where they've been. And, and here's an, another interesting thing is, we're gonna know what they wanna do and where they wanna go. And people say, hey, you go where the Army sends you. But what we have found, and most folks that uh, you know, study this thing, if someone is passionate about something and they really wanna do it, or they, they get to go where they need to know, if we know that and we can get them doing what they wanna do where they want to do it, we're going to be a much more successful army. So if you think about it, we're going to start defining, you know, uh, our soldiers with maybe 25 variables. Rather than two, it's 25. This is, you know, this is where the, this is, you know, we'll, we'll start with your infantry, engineer, captain, whatever that is, but we're going to move into much more detail on that. We're going to, we're going to you know, we're going to be able to screen them maybe for their cognitive and non-cognitive skill sets. So we can add that. So if we're hiring someone and we need someone that is a very good writer or a very good speaker, we'll know that. We may want someone that can work with uh, interagency. We'll know that. You know, they speak this language. They have these type skill sets. So all of a sudden, you know, we've got 25 variables that we're describing folks from. And then what we're doing is we're managing, you know, against requirement, and we'll start defining our jobs by much more than we need an infantry sergeant. And this is going to be really important as we start to go into new fields. You know, take cyber, for example. Cyber has some incredible, uh, unique skill sets uh, that we have to define. And it's not necessarily by rank. There's, there's people that develop these, you know, where they're tool makers or, you know, there may be only a few of these people in the world. And we have to know who they are 
and we have to be able to sign them as we go forward. The other thing we're going to do, and the last thing that, that, that IPSA will give us is auditability, which, first of all, it's a law, which you know is something we, we've got to do. But second of all, we're, we're really going to understand where we're spending our money as we go forward. Many of you know we're going to a, a, a new retirement system. You know, and, and, and now we'll be at a tie, pay to personnel, and so fundamentally change the way we do business. And so all this stuff is going to come together, and, and I, I think we'll be able to take care of our people uh, the way we should. I mean, the Army is people, so we should be able to do this better than anybody else. If I could add to that, the IPSA gives us the ability to do talent management, to do automated talent management. A key component to that is the ability to do what we call talent matching. Now, there's some social apps out there that do that for social reasons. You guys are familiar with them. Uh, but this is on a very large scale, almost 1.1 million people, an IT system that will allow us to see the talents that are out there, to forecast the requirements, the jobs we need done, and those jobs may have to do with a deployment or an upcoming operation, and then make that automated match so that the individual can see it, the assignment officer can see it, and leaders and units can see it. The best way to think of it is an open marketplace where we're allowing units, that we're allowing individuals to compete for talent. We're allowing individuals to tell us what they want and to be able to see the jobs that are out there in the future. So if you think of the supply and demand uh, dynamic, uh, we want to be able to find, if we have a job that needs to be one, able to, if we have a job that's got to be filled, we want to find the best available talent that's out there. The, the idea that IPSA is multi-compo is really important because the best available talent is in the reserves or the National Guard or even in our civilian workforce, we want to be able to see that. Now, we may have to work through some administrative and legal challenges to bring that person on, but if the best person to do a job is in the reserve component, that's why they exist. 330,000 people with incredible skills that we can't see right now. So this, this notion is, is absolutely huge. It is going to be a game changer once we, once we get the system in place. We actually are going to start uh, this winter uh, with a bridge to IPSA called the Assignment Interactive Module. We're going to start piloting that using Command and General Staff College students out at Fort Leavenworth this winter. As you know, they'll be, they'll be assigned uh, the following summer. So we're just going to use our normal distribution cycles, our normal assignment cycles, to take a look at that population. It's about 900 officers. Uh, and that'll be our first stab, our first attempt at trying to get this right. Uh, we should have a talent management, automated talent management capability established uh, by late summer 17. So this will happen fairly quickly. Okay, thank you. I think this concludes our panel for today. If you have any uh, follow-on questions or need any additional information, uh, please wait for me afterwards. My contact information is in the back. Thank you all for being here. This will be on the Divid Sub by later this afternoon. And it will also be on uh, the Army social media, army.mil, also by later this afternoon. Thank you very much.